This is a UC Public Policy Channel program from the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley. Visit us at www.uctv.tv/public-policy for more discussion on solutions for the good of all. Good morning. Uh, my name is Peter Munoz. I'm with the Cal Class of 1968, and I want to welcome you to today's uh, presentation. Um, the class of '68, uh, several years ago, funded and formed the uh, Center for Civility and Democratic Engagement, which is housed in the Goldman School of Public Policy. We are honored to have, as director of the center, Henry Brady, dean of the Goldman School, uh, and as distinguished senior fellow, Robert Reich. Uh, the purpose of the center is to encourage greater uh, public participation in the democratic process and to foster dis civil discussion on important topics uh, facing the nation. Uh, among the center's uh, projects is that normally every year we will have two programs, one today at, at uh, Homecoming and also at Cal Day. Now I'd like to introduce my Cal uh, fellow classmate, um, the, a member of the Class 68, and my colleague on the advisory board for the center, Dick Beers, the moderator of today's programs. Uh, Dick's achievements and accolades are too numerous to mention here, and I would like you to welcome Dick Beers. Thank you. Thank you, Peter, very much, and it's great. This is a wonderful crowd uh, on a beautiful day. I'm so glad you took the time to come here. I can tell you I'm fascinated by the subject at hand as well, and the first thing that hits me is 50 years. I mean, it's almost unbelievable. I mean, it, 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 it seems like yesterday, and I think those of us who were fortunate enough to be on campus in those times looks back and think it was really a seismic shift in many aspects of American society. So I think one of the things that's interesting is this is a topic you can come at from many, many different directions. And I want to say that I think uh, there's been a tremendous remembrance of the free speech movement on the Berkeley campus this month, and it's continuing on. There have been many exciting events exploring it from many different angles. I, I've been fortunate enough to attend many of those. I've enjoyed them a great deal. Very provocative, a lot of food for thought. I think this panel will certainly look back on the free speech, but most of the focus will be on where we are today in the sense, what is the status of free speech? And I got up early this morning, got my New York Times, and on the front page, I can't help but read you an article. Uh, not an, don't worry, a paragraph from an article. Uh, but I think it really speaks to the fact of the freshness, the freshness of the issue of free speech. It's an article right in the middle of the front page saying, secret money fueling a flood of political ads. More than half of the general election advertising aired by outside groups in the battle for control of Congress has come from organizations that discloses little or nothing about their donors. A flood of secret money that is now at the center of the debate over uh, the line between free speech and corruption. So uh, I throw that out there to show you these issues are still with us today. Uh, what I'd like to do very briefly is introduce our panelists, and I will do it in the order in which they're going to speak. And I think most of you have picked up the flyer with a more detailed bio about the speakers, so I'm not going to take your time to repeat that, and I'll just speak to uh, a couple of highlights. Our first speaker to my right will be Dean Henry Brady, who is the dean of the Skol Goldman School of Public Policy. Uh, he is also the co-author of many books, including Let 
letting the people decide dynamics of a Canadian election, which won the Harold Innes Award, as well as voice inequality, civic volunteerism, and American politics, which won the Philip Converse Award. These titles inform you why he, along with Professor Bruce Kane, were the original directors of the center that has already been spoken about by Peter. Uh, Henry is the center's faculty rector, director, and Larry Rosenthal, also a member of the Goldman School faculty, is the program director. Our next speaker is Robin Lakoff, who is a professor of linguistics. And I think I, it's very interesting. One of the things that's fun about these panels is to have a little bit of email discussion uh, before, uh, before the talk about how we're coming at this subject, and it's very interesting. Uh, Robin has a very interesting perspective on, we have a lot of polarization today, a lot of acrimony in our debate, and she has some interesting insights with some thoughts about how we have gotten to this point. Um, uh, you can read Robin's thought-provoking posts on the Berkeley blog, which is at blogs.berkeley.edu, that cover a variety of topics with titles like What Our Words Don't Tell Us, Civility 101, and the ever-fascinating Christie. Uh, our final speaker is Waldo E. Martin, professor of history. I mentioned to him I graduated in history uh, about 50 years ago, so it's a, look very much forward to hearing what's happening today. And Waldo is going to focus on the limits and pitfalls of civility in our profoundly unequal society. And we're not afraid to make statements here. We think it is a profoundly unequal society. He is also a prolific writer, and we encourage you to check out his publications list on his history bio page with titles like like Precious African-American Memories, Post-Racial Dreams in the American Nation, and Freedom on My Mind, A History of Americans with Documents. I'll now turn, without further ado, to Dean Henry Brady. Each speaker will talk for approximately 15 minutes. I might give them a heads up after around 14, so they'll know, we're, we, because we've always found from panels like this, it's really interesting, particularly with a subject like the free speech movement, which probably many of you may have experienced in one way or another, may very well have important things to say. So, Henry? Yeah, thanks. It's great being here, and thank you to my fellow panelists for being here for uh, our center. Uh, by the way, Dick, my, my wife read that paragraph to me this morning, and I just responded. I said, Patty, the problem with you is you believe in democracy. Just give it up. Um, <laughs> So uh, that, that was how I started the day. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about what the free speech movement was about, because we want to get to the present day, but I think we have to understand the free speech movement a little bit. I want to talk a little bit about the word civility and why that's also important, uh, about the lessons for today, and especially about the role of political polarization and where that came from, and finally, a little bit about the role of universities, uh, especially Berkeley. To understand the free speech movement, and I assume there are people in this room who remember it well, I actually got to college in 65 at one of the Claremont Colleges, Harvey Mudd College, uh, so I wasn't here for that period, but I'll tell you about some other things I was involved in during that period. I certainly remember the period very well. It's really important to remember universities were very sleepy places. 
uh, tables on Sproul Plaza that tried to recruit people to political causes or to political organizations were not really allowed. There was a small strip that was allowed uh, along uh, uh, right a little bit to the south of there. But basically, you just couldn't do that. And universities were not places that encouraged students to become actively involved in political movements. They were, in fact, places where a concept called in loco parentis, which is just what it sounds like, um, in the place of parents, basically, that the university would take the place of parents and try to make sure that students didn't misbehave. Um, And that included such things as having opinions, particularly of their own, that went beyond maybe discussions in classrooms. Um, So there was a sense that college was simply a place to go to get a job, to get the skills to get a job. This is very much, by the way, because of the uh, coming out of World War II and the Depression before that, and a sense on the part of a whole generation that really what they wanted to do was go to college, get a good job, and just do okay financially. Um, But at the same time, just at this very period, the Civil Rights Movement was starting in that era. Uh, We uh, were in the midst in 64 of the Goldwater-Johnson election, uh, which activated people actually on both the right and the left. And indeed, in many ways, it was that election that got the right wing in America going and led to Ronald Reagan and other things, uh, and also set the course for a lot of what happened with the left wing in America. So there was a sense that college was not a place where you really did a lot to express yourself, and certainly not a place necessarily where you went in order to learn things to prepare yourself for moral choices and for dissent. That's just not what it was about. So, student activism, however, had started to be fueled by the civil rights movement and by the other things that were happening in America. The Vietnam War was getting underway. Uh, There was a sense that that might be a problem um, and other kinds of difficulties in America. So, the free speech movement was really about just free speech, the ability to have thoughts that went beyond the classroom and for students to express themselves uh, on political matters and other matters. And now, by the way, it seems so simple. I mean, it's hard to actually explain to students exactly what was at stake because this era is so foreign to them. One of the important things to know about the free speech movement is it got its result without violence. There's this famous uh, scene where Uh, Students were getting on top of the police cars, but removed their shoes first so they wouldn't hurt the police car. Uh, So there was a real emphasis, especially on the part of Mario Savio and some of the other leaders, to not do anything violently. So what about civility in free speech? Well, the first thing to say is that free speech is not always civil. So, in fact, if you believe in free speech, you sometimes have to give up the value of civility. Um, And furthermore, it's important to remember that often with free speech, the definition of civility is by people in power who frankly take any dissent, any difference of opinion, as being uncivil. Uh, But consider the American Tea Party, the civil rights movement, protests in Eastern Europe and the Baltics that brought the Soviet Union down. Consider Hong Kong right now. The authorities didn't think any of those things were particularly civil. So civility in their minds was not being served. And yet those were incredibly important movements in the history of the world that made a difference. Uh, In my own case, it's a very small case, but I was involved in anti-war work on the campus at Harvey Mudd College, and I was brought up on charges of disrupting the normal operations of the college because I had the temerity in a class 
to announce, without the permission of the professor, I do admit, uh, that there should, would be that day an anti-war protest on campus and that students might want to go to it. That's what I did. And I literally was brought up on charges and almost thrown out of college. I was saved by the college president, uh, a very far-sighted man, Joe Platt, who uh, uh, I think actually saw in me somebody who had a moral compass and thought that was important and that, in fact, it might be an important thing for my future development. I was also told by another college president at the Claremont Colleges, George C.S. Benson, who went on to work in the Nixon administration, uh, he was the president of Claremont Men's College, that he simply did not understand what was going on the campus. And it was just nothing like the panty raids he remembered from the 50s. <laughs> you know, there they'd come, and then when they were told to disperse, they'd disperse, and everything was fine. I remember sitting across a table from him discussing our policy on protest and saying to him, don't you understand there's actually big moral issues at stake here? And he seemed befuddled by this notion. Really? He said. Uh, I actually got so angry at this moment, I excused myself from that meeting, went out in the hall and smashed my fist against a brick wall, which is why I permanently have a a knuckle that's no longer there. Um, Because I just was so angry. But I didn't want to be uncivil in this meeting. So there was very little understanding by administrations about the fact that major principles were at stake and that we really should take them into account. And free speech was often described as incivility. Yet, still, civility is necessary for a society to make decisions to get things done. Uh, We must have discussions among people of different perspectives where we must try to understand each other's positions. We must be willing to listen. So I put civility very high among the pantheon of values. Not always so high that I would say you can't have your free speech because I would worry that I was defining civility on my terms and not their terms. But I still would try to urge people to be civil whenever possible because I do think that unless we get a chance to actually discuss things, we may never get anywhere. Um, And so, for example, I led and helped organize about a half half a dozen demonstrations in New York City in the late 60s, early 70s, Uh, one that inadvertently shut down Fifth Avenue. We had a license for 500 people, 5,000 showed up. I remember a wonderful Irish cop who came up to me, quite upset. He says, stop this. You've got to get rid of these people. And I said, what am I supposed to do? Tell them to go home? And he said, we're going to have to stop the traffic. We're going to have to shut down Fifth Avenue. And I said, well, I'm sorry, but people do have a right to come out to a demonstration, and I don't think it would be a good idea to try to disperse them. We had another one at Grand Central Terminal uh, and another one at a hotel where Richard Nixon was getting an award. I was proud that all of these were nonviolent. I actually worked very hard to make sure that was true. There were people at these demonstrations who wanted them to become violent. And part of my job, I felt, was to make sure that didn't happen. Uh, The Grand Central demonstration, for example, actually had a, a whole bunch of people singing songs as commuters came into New York City and left New York City, uh, and they were anti-war songs. We've got a lot of television. I think it really made a point. Uh, And I always distrusted, actually, the parts of the political movements of that era that moved so quickly to incivility. And sometimes I think it's because they believed more in license than they believed in liberty. And so, again, I know that sometimes... Free speech has to be uncivil. But I also think it's important to try to 
not get there too quickly. Uh, one of the reasons, in fact, I almost got thrown out of college is that my announcement to that class that I talked about was meant to stave off an invasion of the classroom by a group of SDS members outside the classroom who wanted to truly disrupt the class and thought a little violence would be a good thing. And I didn't. So what are the lessons for today? Is there more incivility today? Did the free speech movement and subsequent student movements of the 60s, as I was recently told at a conference at Pepperdine University, uh, lead to an era of incivility? I'll let my fellow panelists talk about some of that in detail, but, but let me just say that I think there's other causes we can point to. It's worth noting, for example, that Ronald Reagan became governor of California by promising to clean up the mess at Berkeley. He played upon division. I don't know that his rhetoric was particularly civil during that period. Richard M. Nixon uh, rose to the presidency in 68 by exploiting divisions within society. Again, I'm not so sure how civil his speech always was. So it's not clear to me that it was just the movements like the free speech movement and protests and demonstrations of the 60s that led to what I think is a probably somewhat more uncivil era than we had in the 50s and 60s, but at the same time, it's an era which is actually taking a hard look at America and trying to come to grips with problems that were swept under the rug during that period, problems of race and class and gender. Uh, another cause of the difficulties we have today and the reason people are uncivil is that, that Authority has failed at so many crucial moments. Uh, Nixon and Watergate, Reagan and Iran-Contra, Clinton and Lewinsky. Many more examples could be brought forth. And because authority has failed so much, people are distrustful and afraid on both the left and the, and the right, and sometimes with very good reason. But one of the biggest reasons for incivility today is political polarization. And the political polarization in America can hardly be laid at the door of the free speech movement uh, or the activism of the 60s, I think. Other causes seem much more relevant. How about the real inequities in our society, those of gender, race, class, sexual preference, and so forth? Um, how about the ever-growing income inequality in America? And by the way, that's one of the things that drives the Tea Party. They're afraid... They're scared. They're scared because he, they see their incomes going down and they don't feel like they have much control over that. So the perception on the part of many on the left and the right is that society is changing in ways that make them afraid and angry. Um, one of the things that's occurred is a lot of immigration and that's probably stirred the pot as well. I would argue that that's part of what makes America great in the long run, but in the short run it often leads to polarization and difficulties as this society tries to deal with whole new groups, with whole new cultures, uh, whole new needs. So another thing is the changing roles of people in America because of cultural changes and the social issues of, of abortion, gay rights, the role of religion in America, and so forth. And then we have a political system which unfortunately is not good at making decisions right now. Gerrymandering is a problem. Uh, part of it just because of political geography per se, part of it because constructed gerrymands. Um, primaries that become contests for politicians to demonstrate how far to the left or how far to the right they are. Uh, news media with insatiable appetites for news that grabs, and that means you know, if, it, if it bleeds, it leads. Uh, 
the, the motto of, of some television stations, uh, and that uh, lead them to focus on anger, playing to one, one's audience, and basically to stir the pot and make people upset and not try to have civil conversation. And then finally, our decision mechanisms of balance of powers, especially leading when we have such things as the filibuster in the Senate, make it hard to, to make decisions. So what's the role of the universities in all this? Well, in this era, I think we have to be centers for free speech, foremost, but also civility. Uh, we must have free speech to make sure that no voice is suppressed. Uh, but we also must have civility, because one of the things I worry about at Berkeley, it's hard to bring a conservative onto the Berkeley campus and not worry that person will be shouted down because of somebody's exercise of free speech in the audience. But that means that a lot of other people don't get a chance to hear conservative perspectives. Now, maybe the argument is they're not worth hearing, but I guess I believe that almost any perspective is worth hearing and that universities should be places, must be places, where all perspectives are heard. Because otherwise, how are we going to try to figure out the truth? And it turns out, by the way, sometimes those you disagree with, they're sometimes right. How amazing. So let's listen to them. So, we must make sure through this process that we make our students think. I do not want to go back to the 50s and 60s. I don't want to create Berkeley as a place where one perspective is what rules, just as one perspective ruled in the 50s and 60s. It may be a perspective that I have more sympathy with, but I want to make sure Berkeley continues to place, be a place where all kinds of perspectives are put forth. And one of the reasons I'm so excited about our Center on Civility and Democratic Engagement is I think it's a place and an, an effort to try to make sure that we have free speech and civility and real democratic engagement so that we can find ways for our students to really think hard about issues and to really become educated and I think therefore to become the leaders of the future with a moral compass. Thanks. Thank you very much, Henry. I'm just going to interject one observation from uh, Berkeley in the 60s. Uh, I was involved with bringing a number of senators to campus to speak, and it was interesting. Senator John Tower, who was extremely conservative from Texas, spoke on the Sprawl Hall steps. I mean, almost seems quite amazing. He got along great because everyone just thought he was a cartoon character. So it was very... It was lighthearted. He was laughing at the students, and the students were laughing at him. Jacob Javits, who was a little bit, he was a liberal Republican, on the fence, on the war, making noises anti-war, very tough for him, because they're feeling he was being very hypocritical. He was being anti-war, but he wasn't taking the actions against it. And yet it would be great to have more Jacob Javits in the Republican Party these yeah, days. Exactly. <laughs> Isn't it true? And there's a topic unto itself. <laughs> yes. uh, Robin, our linguist. Okay, so um, a short excursion into the midst of history. On September 9th, 2009, that's five years ago, President Obama addressed a joint session of Congress to discuss the Affordable Care Act. At one point in his speech, he stated that illegal immigrants would not be covered in that act. Remember? 
Immediately, there came a shout, loud and clear, from Congressman Joe Wilson, a Republican of South Carolina, and he said, You lied. Yes, you lied. The interruption was shocking in several ways. Uh, for most of its history, Congress has abided by rules of um, extreme, if hypocritical, civility. You know, you say, my worthy opponent, my friend from across the aisle, my good and valued friend, no matter what you think. Uh, this outburst was something quite different. I don't want to say that it was a direct cause of where we are now, but I would argue that it functioned as a kind of precursor. I'm using this example as a clear case of public incivility. Uh, it's highly uncivil because in its two words, you lie, it contains three major components of discourse that I would call uncivil. First, it was exclusionary. Uh, it was anti-diverse and arguably racist. By violating two century old protocols mandating respect for the president in particular, with America's first black president, Wilson implied that Mr. Obama was in some way not a real or legitimate president. This idea gets carried out much later with the birthers, of course. Uh, why not? Because the president of the United States uh, must be one of us. Uh, just a little bit better than us, but us. And clearly this president was not one of the normal us that had always exclusively constituted Joe Wilson's usness. Diversity threatens civility for reasons I will talk about shortly, although diversity also requires civility for reasons I will shortly talk about. Uh, um, Wilson didn't need to resort to obvious racist slurs. Uh, his outburst merely reminded hearers of one major source and justification for racism, the need for exclusion, one aspect of incivility. That was sufficient. Secondly, conversationally, discursively, it was an interruption and therefore uncivil. Interruption at any, in any kind of talk keeps the speaker from fully expressing an idea and it also functions as a kind of power play. I'm more important than you, so I can take over the conversational space. Uh, I can take away your free speech rights, in effect. <laughs> It's also when, when successful, and this was not a successful interruption, because if you recall, the president just went on calmly uh, rather than stopping and uh, being flustered. Uh, but it, um, when it's successful, interruption actually cuts off the rights of other participants, the audience here. They can't hear what they came to hear. So interruption shows disrespect which is another aspect of uncivil discourse. And finally, it consisted, Joe Wilson's You Lie, consisted of an ancient insult, what used to be called in the old days giving the lie to someone. In the old days, if one gentleman, gentleman is important, gave another the lie, the latter that is said to the second person, you lie or you're a liar, the second necessarily had to challenge the first to a duel. Risk, risk his life, uh, or the charge would be assumed to be true, and the presumed liar would be excluded from the circle of gentlemen, and essentially his social life, would, his and his wife's and his children's, 
marriage possibilities. In that case, his social career would be over, which would be catastrophic. Now, Wilson, had he been so disposed, could have expressed his disagreement in a less uncivil fashion, could have said, I don't think so, or I don't believe that, or you're wrong. And the fact that he chose the strongest and most uncivil way of expressing his disagreement um, tells us, I think, that he meant to be uncivil. Okay, so what is civility then exactly? You know, we are talking about a, a concept and a word And I thought it might be interesting uh, and even fun to uh, look at its etymology. This is called, you invite a linguist, this is what you get. (laughs) We're going to do etymology. Okay, so where does, I want to look back, uh, you know, etymology can be fun and can be interesting and can tell us something. And I think it does in this case. So let's ask, you know, what is the etymology of this word civility, or its opposite, incivility? Um, Civil, first of all, is derived from the Latin word kiwilis, of a citizen. Uh, Kiwis, that is citizen, also Latin, comes from a Proto-Indo-European source. Proto-Indo-European is the hypothetical constructed or language, original language that underlies most European languages. Latin being one, English being another, many, many others. Uh, And it comes from, um, kiwis comes from a couple of Proto-Indo-European roots. One is, let's see, always wondering whether to pronounce the Indo-European, the asterisk in an Indo-European construction, reconstruction, means uh, we've never actually seen this form, but it looks like this is where, this is what we have to go back to. Sometimes I think you should pronounce it. Okay. Um, on the other hand, I think you shouldn't pronounce it that way. So. But uh, K, this hypothetical root, meaning something like bed or couch or lie, and then uh, another a suffix, we, meaning one who, an agentive. So a K, we, kiwis, is a member of a household, people who bed together, who are intimate with each other, and therefore is someone you trust and someone you share the running of things with, running of of important things. So a citizen is someone who is a member of our group, and thus someone who is entitled to civil treatment, uh, and is also an active participant in the business of the group and its transactions. In this way, a citizen of a republic is different from a subject of a totalitarian system, because citizens, by the very etymology of the word, take part and share intimately with other citizens. So this is um, you know, interesting and suggests that if we want to connect uh, diversity and civility, funny things may happen, you know, going back to the very source. Um, the next thing I wanted to suggest is that Civility and freedom of speech, rather than being opposites, actually are, are necessary. They both potentiate and necessitate each other, uh, both in a diverse society or even in a diverse society. That is, when you have diversity, uh, civility becomes more essential uh, if you want diverse kinds of speech from diverse kinds of people 
to be possible and to be listened to. So if, in other words, civility involves this notion of joint membership in a group connected by relationships and interests, and based on that, the idea that all of, a group's of all of a group's members need to trust one another to speak uh, freely so as to be able to address everyone's needs, then it becomes clear that civility and free speech, rather than adversaries, uh, are comrades in arms. And I do mean arms sometimes. Now we think here of the metaphor of um, the marketplace of ideas that was created by Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes about a century ago uh, to explain the importance of uh, First Amendment freedom of speech. Uh, this marketplace, I always envision it as um, a kind of a farmer's marketplace of ideas. <laughs> this is what happens when you live in Berkeley and you're a foodie. Uh, <laughs> but then you know how to do it. You, if you're a buyer, you have to have access to all the goods that are up for sale. If you're a seller, you have to be able to display your goods openly and attractively. Uh, this means that all participants in the market must have full access to free expression. Even those participants who historically might not have been expected or legally permitted to have a voice. In other words, free speech presupposes full equality in diversity. So people of color, women, and you know, people of lower economic classes, uh, people of different religions, out, uh, than Christianity, uh, outsiders of all kinds must be given full discourse rights in this marketplace. Their utterances must be treated with the same civility with which the traditional participants in the marketplace expect of one another as parts of the us, you know, the uh, K-way. Civility, if the, word is, if the word is to be meaningful, requires freedom of speech. There has to be something important to be civil about and freedom of speech, then true freedom of speech requires civility. But the ancient idea of civility, K-we again, bases full discourse rights on non-diversity, the homogeneous household. So a paradox is created. How can we give the same respect to the not us as we give to us if the basis of our respectfulness, civility, is homogeneity, household membership? that contradiction may be at the root of our current difficulties. And to get sort of uh, more understanding here, uh, the next set of things, of ideas I want to talk about, involves um, Nicholas Dirk, uh, Chancellor Nicholas Dirks's statement and the uh, Kukfa Council of University of California Faculty Associations, their statement, which you should have, uh, Dirks's statement is the first one, well, the first non-my one on your handout, and the Kukfa statement is the second. So I want to talk about Dirks, Kukfa, Thucydides, and Humpty Dumpty. That should be good for everybody. Okay, uh, on September 5th, Chancellor Dirks published a brief statement, which is the first, uh, the second thing on your handout. Okay. Uh, to all joining all members of the university community to try to be civil uh, in all of its engagement, in all engagements with each other, public and private. It struck me as a perfect chancellor statement. Uh, it was reason perfectly reasonable, well put, and nothing controversial. It could be paraphrased simply as be nice. Uh, 
the second statement, the Kukfa statement, uh, was a quick response and very strong. Uh, what seems odd to me about it is that the utterance is that it is responding to is not the one that I read the chancellor to have made, uh, semantically or pragmatically. Okay, semantically, that is meanings, I don't get, I, I, my meaning of civility doesn't, is essentially that of the chancellor's. It is not that of Kukfa, which almost seems to equate civility with something like silencing. Uh, and I don't, you know, and pragmatically, it appears to understand the nature of the, of the uh, Chancellor's Speech Act, not as I did uh, as, um, as advice or suggestion, but rather as a, a mandate, an order, perhaps even a threat. Be nice or you'll be punished. You know, the notion of punishment occurs throughout the Kukfa statement. And if, in fact, Kukfa is so severely misunderstanding, uh, Dirks' statement, that's a kind of incivility because it cuts him off by misinterpretation from fully making his meaning. Um, and, you know, this is this kind of um, misinterpretation is the kind of thing that often happens when people, it's, a, it's another form of incivility saying ordinarily to a person of lesser power, uh, I know what you mean. I'll tell you what you mean. Uh, the classical to man to a woman, you're so cute when you're mad. So this is a dangerous thing. Okay. So um, I'm going quickly through a lot of this. Uh, Thucydides, uh, I think this, his statement is on your handout, and Humpty Dumpty are both talking about situations of existential panic, existential fear. Uh, the Peloponnesian War in the 5th century BC that Thucydides is writing about caused Athens to come to the brink of total chaos and collapse. As a result, and you can read this statement, language ceased to have its normal meanings in Athens, says Thucydides. It changed in dangerous ways. And secondly, Humpty Dumpty, who is also in a state of existential terror, He's a big egg on a high, narrow wall, and he knows what's next for him. So he is afraid, as the Athenians were, of ceasing to exist. My argument here is that when societies, individuals including eggs, uh, and institutions like universities are in a state of, of uh, existential threat and, debt and uh, fear of death, they start to misuse language as Humpty Dumpty also does. You can read his statement. And because the university has currently been in a state of existential fear, you know, a lot of public discussion, what's the university for? What are we doing? Why are we, you know, what should we be doing? Should there be a university at all? I think this may be one of the reasons for the misinterpretation. So finally, the last point I want to make, and I'll make very quickly, is yes, those are good reasons to be civil, the ones I've talked about. But there's an even better reason, which is that finally, civility is good for you. In other words, if you're trying to persuade someone of, your, of an argument in any sort of discourse, to be civil to them will be more likely to persuade, not necessarily them, but certainly onlookers and participants, 
to listen to you and think that you might be right. If you cut off discourse, if you yell and shout and stomp and do uncivil things, well, people who uh, are listening may think that you're just being obnoxious and cutting them off and not giving them the power to listen and make up their own minds. They may be understanding your incivility as, you know what, people? I don't think you're smart enough to make up your own minds. I'd better help you. And nobody, when you tell someone directly or not, they're not too smart, they are not going to listen to you. And so finally then, if you want to be persuasive, which is what we all want to be in private and public discourse, be civil. Try it. It works. Okay. Thank you. Waldo, um, I want to push the conversation in another direction. Um, first, um, I want to suggest that um, as a historian, uh, I decided that I wanted to, 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 to take us back. And one of the ways I wanted to take us back was to sort of offer two different uh, sort of ways of thinking about something that both, uh, both Henry uh, and, and Robin talked about. Um, one is sort of the way in which civility in the past has operated. Um, and in, in my way of thinking about it, one of the problems um, with civility is that in the past, rather than operating to open and empower, civility has in fact operated to close down and to silence. And I think this was particularly the case under Jim Crow, particularly the case under uh, a set of racial practices and uh, patterns of racial etiquette, which on the surface were very civil. They were very mannerly. They were very polite. Um, but they uh, did not in any way really engage and it wasn't until that system was overturned that you got what I would suggest was sort of real civility, honesty. Um, the other thing that sort of I think we might want to have a conversation about uh, Henry as a neighbor and a friend, but I worry far less about conservatives being invited to campus and having a voice than truly radical people being invited to this campus and having a voice. Um, in my experience here, most of the voices are sort of somewhere in the center, and they don't go very far in either direction. And it seems to me that to have the kind of civil dialogue that really invites uh, a kind of vigorous conversation, you at least need a real conservative, and you at least need a real radical as opposed to a faux conservative and a faux radical, um, which we have a lot of around here. Um, <laughs> in fact, um, what I really want to talk about is sort of thinking about a frame for understanding race relations in this country that I think speaks to the issue of civility. Um, a historian, Will, William Chafe, wrote a very important book uh, on the African-American freedom struggle in my hometown, Greensboro, North Carolina. And what this book does is it looks at 
this framework for interracial work, this framework for interracial understanding, which indeed was all about civility. And what the book uh, uncloses is the strengths and the weaknesses of this kind of dialogue, this kind of sort of understanding in a racially unequal and racially polarized society. Um, and what I want to suggest is, is sort of in the spirit of what Bill Chafe argued, that in a racially stratified society uh, like ours, which has continually struggled with the challenges of realizing a democracy, civility can undermine as well as promote democracy. Indeed, civility can be a double-edged sword, and this is often the way it has operated, especially in terms of uh, sort of the African-American freedom struggle. Um, my argument uh, is sort of pushing in another direction. I want to suggest that if and when sort of the African-American freedom struggle is ever really revitalized, and in my way of thinking, being uh, old school, I think we need one, um, forms of protest, forms of disruption that cannot be circumscribed or contained by a notion like civility will most likely be necessary. Um, I want to suggest that uh, oftentimes the bias of civility pushes in the direction of the status quo. It tends to promote conservatism. All too often, civility masks and it undercuts sort of more uh, progressive uh, sort of ways of thinking, acting. Uh, put another way, civility all too often retards reform. It all too often retards uh, necessary change. Um, the other problem is that civility is often uh, talk. It's often conversation. It's often rhetoric. But as James Brown once put it, talking loud but saying nothing. Or to put it even more starkly and plainly, talk can be very cheap. And I think what I'd like to see us talk about are ways in which civility and action or practice uh, relate to one another. Because it strikes me that um, uh, we have a lot of good talk, we have a lot of good conversation, but what's lacking is sort of the connection between good talk and good practice. Um, to sort of make this point, I would, in, in a very, very short period of time, I'd just like to say that one of the things that made the free speech movement and the uh, civil rights movement effective was indeed nonviolent civil disobedience. That um, a lot of what uh, the uh, free speech movement learned uh, from the civil rights movement and was inspired by, uh, you know, indeed inspired by that movement and took from that movement were tactics and strategies uh, which cut against the grain. And I think. Um, Cutting against the grain, as I've suggested, is often not what, um, when most people think about civility, it, it, it's all about. Um, the other thing about the free speech movement and the civil rights movement that I think uh, Henry mentioned, but I think it, it bears mentioning uh, again, is 
the civil rights movement origins of the free speech movement at Berkeley, um, uh, many of the students who were initially uh, involved in the leadership of the free speech movement especially spent uh, a summer in um, places like Mississippi doing freedom summer work. Uh, that was what July, August. Uh, free speech movement happens that fall and many of them, um, their sort of inspiration was the work that they had done around voter uh, registration and education as well as sort of setting up freedom schools in places like Mississippi. So once you've looked at the heart of darkness that was a place like Mississippi, I think it's easier to look, uh, what, what was that, Gert? Clark Kerr or somebody else in the face and uh, sort of face them down. The point here is both that the civil rights movement and the free speech movement uh, sort of did not demand uh, uh, civility. When civility failed, no, especially civil rhetoric, direct action proved necessary. When civil dialogue failed, militant protest proved necessary. And what I want to uh, push uh, is a different way of thinking about um, civility. Um, I have a lot of stuff up here, but I think we need to talk. The, the, the point of... Um, Bill Chafe's book was that um, the frame, the, the racial frame uh, in the South was very civil. Uh, essentially, elites, leaders on both sides, white and black leaders, often talked, they often interacted, they developed tactics and strategies to, um, you know, sort of make the system um, work. And um, so, even within sort of that very sort of like on the surface, very, very civil dialogue, very, very civil set of practices, you know, um, black people, especially in Greensboro, were able to make, get uh, concessions, were able to make advances. Um, but that did not really shift until African-Americans adopted more militant strategies, more militant tactics. And this was especially the case uh, with uh, a movement like Black Power, which was a real challenge. And, and what I want to suggest is that Black Power was a far more effective and um, successful uh, set of civil practices as well as political practices than conventional uh, historians and conventional understanding um, might suggest. Um, I don't want to say that civility is unimportant. Obviously, it's important. Um, uh, manners are important. Uh, conversation is important. But I do think that um, what we also need to think about is the relationship between manners, civility, and practice and actions, structures and institutions. And when and if uh, civility is part of a system that sustains the system rather than reforms and changes the system when change and reform is necessary. I think this is when civility really becomes a problem, and this is sort of something that I think we definitely um, need to talk about. Um, for example, um, one of the real failures, I think, of something like civility is something uh, goes to um, these conversations on race that we always have but go nowhere because they aren't about 
anything really. Um, and similarly, uh, we have this civic engagement, um, but I can't for the life of me understanding, understand what that kind of dialogue and that kind of engagement has done to stem the tide of the uh, horrific um, mass incarceration crisis that we confront uh, and the school-to-prison pipeline uh, that we confront that obviously disproportionately affects African-American and Latino males. Um, It seems to me the facts are clear. We know how to change this, but there's a lack of political will, there's a lack of social will, and that is the problem. Um, I come at this inspired by the, the work that I first did uh, as a graduate student on Frederick Douglass, and um, if I can find it, I may not be able to find it, so I probably will just have to talk about it. Well, yeah, let me, let me just read this. The whole history of the progress of human liberty shows that all concessions yet made to her august claims have been born of earnest struggle. The conflict has been exciting, agitating, all-absorbing, and for the time being, putting all other, struggle, uh, putting all other uh, efforts to silence. It must do this or it does nothing, and this is the key. If there is no struggle, there is no progress. If there is no struggle, there is no progress. Those who profess to favor freedom and yet deprecate agitation are men who want want crops without plowing up the ground. They want rain without thunder and lightning. They want the ocean without the awful roar of its many waters. The struggle may be a moral one or it may be a physical one and it may be both, both moral and physical but it must be a struggle. Find out just what any people will quietly submit to, and you have found out the exact measure of injustice and wrong which will be imposed upon them. And these will continue till they are resisted with either words or blows or with both. The limits of tyrants are prescribed by the endurance of those whom they oppress. In the light of these ideas, and this is uh, 1857, Negroes will be hunted at the north and held and flogged in slavery at the south so long as they submit to these devilish outrages and make no resistance, either moral or physical. Men may get all they want in the, men may not get all they pay for in this world, but they must certainly pay for all they get. If we are ever to get free from the imp- oppressions and wrongs heaped among us, we must pay for the removal. We must do this by labor, by suffering, by sacrificing, and if needs be, by our lives and the lives of others. Thank you. I'd like to thank all of our panelists for extraordinarily insightful remarks. I think we're going to have a terrific discussion. And because they uh, respected the time limit so carefully, we have a full 30 minutes for discussion, which is great. I hope uh, I'd like to make just a couple of points. I, I think it was very interesting what Waldo was saying. In a sense, 
there comes a time for civil disobedience for more extreme action. And I'm going to tie that to Henry's comment about the a question about not getting there too quickly. So it's a question of when do you do it? When I, I came to Berkeley in the fall of 63, so I'm kind of an event groupie. I like to be where things are happening. So I went to all the free speech movement, you know, the car, the everything, when people were being arrested. And I sat there quite honestly in stunned silence. I'd grown up in kind of a waspy existence in Palo Alto, California. Nothing prepared me for this at all. And I just kind of thought, what in the hell is going on here? So it was really quite an interesting thing. But in regards to timing, I I have just a couple of quick takeaways I'd like to share with you, and I'd like to hear from others on this kind of point as well. When I got here, bear in mind the free speech movement started in the summer. And it wasn't, the civil disobedience didn't take place until December. And in a sense, I think the protests were almost textbook of what you were supposed to do. Petitions, peaceful protests of all kinds, shoes off on the police car and all that kind of thing. Nothing happened, no progress. 700 people were arrested, boom, it was over. And one of the things, it was, it was over over the course of the next month. But the faculty took action then. And I've, I have really a couple of regrets looking back on the free speech movement. Obviously, very important rights need to be achieved and were. So the bottom line was success. But the two things that have, have caused me some, uh, I guess, frustration, it shouldn't have been necessary. I mean, it just, when you look back at the issues, it's very unfortunate that came to that. Also, I wish the faculty had gotten more involved earlier. And when you think about it, 600, 700 people were arrested. And I, in reading the book on Savio, uh, Freedom's Orator, I guess by uh, Robert Cohen, I mean, he spent like three months in jail. I mean, it was, people were putting it on the line. And I contrast that with the comment in the New York Times today where anonymous donors controlling the process, that's a lot different than people putting it on the line and having the accountability of being arrested. Anyway, let's open the floor to questions or comments. Let me just say, democracy is much diminished when, in fact, money can substitute for individual action and involvement, and that's one of the biggest mistakes we've made in our democracy right now. We must find a way to get it back such that you have to mix your labor with the the protest, the petitioning, and so forth, and I think that'll be a better democracy. So we have a microphone here. of a question right up front. Maybe you can stand and face the audience so everyone can hear you. Please be brief. (laughs) Professor Martin, you had brought up the incarceration of certain minority populations and that there are solutions, but we just lack the will to do it. I was hoping you could expand a little bit on the solutions you were thinking of. First of all, we need to abolish prisons because they don't do what they're supposed to do. We need a, a totally new system of uh, trying to um, take care of people who break the law. So I think uh, I, I'm, I'm in favor of a totally radical sort of rethinking and, and, and reworking of sort of crime and punishment because clearly what we do is broken, it's sort of like the medical system. Um, and so, uh, if you're interested, there's a whole lot of literature on that. I mean, and that's not my specialty. That's just something I'm committed to. But I think that's sort of my general approach. Uh, you can't tinker with this system because it's too corrupt, it's too awful, and it's too bad. We need a new system. 
I have a question, I guess, specifically for the linguist about the Occupy movement and just the language used in that, um, since it's so uh, current and local. Um, I'm not sure. Are you referring to, do you have particular examples? Because I hadn't thought about that. Well, I just think the, the Occupy movement in general and the language that, that was that was used. Maybe it should be opened up to all of you. Are you talking about the 1% language, or are you the, talking the about... The 1%, yes. Okay. Robin, go ahead. Oh, oh. Yeah, what, uh, what about Occupy the, or the 1%? The word 1%? Occupy and also the language of referring to the 1%. As a um, linguist, how do you respond to those? It's powerful. It, you know, it got people together. It got people thinking new ways. Uh, I'm not sure I have anything to say beyond that. And I have to say that when people were asking about what was Occupy all about there, not some of its various forms, my, my, and I was here 64 to 68, my comment was I've never seen a gathering that was so inclusive and so discursive as spending hours on that plaza talking to the variety of people who were there from all ages, all economics, all everything. Uh, that, w- that reminded me of being on the plaza, and you just don't see that, you know, that often in our, in our society today. And two people wandered up with cow hats on, by the way, uh, who happened to be visiting New York. It blew me away. Um, the question I wanted to ask is also about New York. Um, so three weeks ago tomorrow, there was a People's Climate March in New York. And I won't do the time for ha- raising hands here of how many people know how many people marched and even heard about the People's Climate March. But there were 310,000 people marched down Broadway and Central Park three times as many people as the organizers planned for, a third of a million people. And I talked to so many people who are politically involved the next day, didn't even know it had happened. The newspaper coverage of it was almost near, nil, and some of it only after was 310,000 people. So if I was on the management team of 350.org and it was Monday morning, would I be sitting there going, this is the greatest thing in the world, we've turned the corner on, on climate change, or would I be sitting there going, what the heck are we going to do to get the spotlight on us because we got 310,000 people and we obviously didn't have the violence that would have brought about uh, the impact that we wanted this to have. Was that a win? We're in the progress of, you know, what what do we do next? So if you're wanting to be civil, but at the same time, this is a movement that needs to happen now, the clock is ticking, what would you say would be the your assessment of how successful that was and what would be the strategy following up on something like that? Well, maybe you're saying it didn't appear on Fox News, so it couldn't have been important. But, um, <laughs> you know, I think, it, I think it did have an impact because I think the people at the U.N. certainly knew that was going on and that was the target to a large degree. And I've talked to people who were there at some of those meetings who said that that was a palpable presence, that there was something going on outside. So I think it was a success. Uh, violence might have gotten more coverage. I'm not sure it would have done it a tremendous amount of benefit. Um, certainly Fox News would have covered it then, but would that necessarily have been good is the point of my, my comment. Way back? I, th- I think it's fair to say that 50 years ago, the administration officials who were kind of blindsided by what all happened and, and put the events of this free speech movement into motion would probably be surprised to see that 50 years later, here we are today. For those of you who put some thought into this, and, and I wonder if you have any perspective on what kinds of things are going on today 
that are challenges to the status quo that, uh, that the today's student body will be looking back at 50, 50 years from now? I can say one thing that my students care about, and that's student debt. I think um, the crushing debt load that so many of our uh, working class and middle class students carry is unconscionable. And um, I'm not, I mean, I'm old, so I, I understand I can't tell anybody what to do. But it seems to me that this is the kind of issue that can motivate and mobilize Students, um, one of, I mean, when it comes up in my class, the students' eyes just, you know, you know this is you know, two or three jobs to sustain an education. In the '60s, what was it? It was very cheap to go to Berkeley. Yeah, it's it's no it's no it's no it's no longer cheap. It's often more viable for working class and middle class students to go to elite colleges because those elite colleges will give you more financial aid than a place it's like Berkeley. The problem is they don't get in. Uh, Stanford <laughs> has 15% Pell Grant eligible. We've got 38% Pell yeah, Grant eligible. I mean, this is a problem. I agree with you. On the other hand, Berkeley, by the way, has done pretty well on the student debt. I think it's, we're at something like $18,000, which is not nothing, but certainly not enormously onerous uh, with respect to student debt. So uh, I wish we were cheaper. I wish the state had continued to fund us. That's not happened. Uh, we have not actually even replaced our lost state dollars one for one with tuition dollars. That is to say we've raised tuition less than the state has taken away from us. So I think we've done pretty well in that regard. Uh, we've actually, in other words, become more efficient and effective. Unfortunately, it is true the students pay some of the price, but I'm not sure what the alternative is. I'd like to speak to that question in the back about what we're going to look back on. I think it's climate change is an issue of incredible importance, and it's not being addressed. I mean, it's, uh, I think debate is stifled in many ways. I, I have to tell you, the uh, Science Committee of the House of Representatives in the last year passed legislation. Now, it didn't get out of the House, but it got out of the House Science Committee saying that any research funded by the federal government could not be used in considering regulations. I mean, yeah, exactly. Think of that. I mean, I'm always saying data is so much more important than dogma, and that's legislation saying that only dogma can be considered. It's frightening. And from a historical standpoint, you look at the United States, what do we do? We respond to issues late. I mean, we can go back through history. We get on things late. In the case of climate change, there's such a thing as being too late. I mean, if you look at history, you'd say in 20 years we're going to wake up. And, oh, my God, let's do something. Unfortunately, reciprocal feedback and the less can cause real problems. So it's, for me, from a personal standpoint, I've been in a lot of protests in my life, and I've never been arrested, and I think I've got to put that on my bucket list. <laughs> so I, I'm trying to pick the issue, and looking, listening to the filter of this today, I think climate change is it, because... What you need with civil disobedience is to draw attention to an issue. And 
anyway. Well, we do certainly have student groups on campus very concerned about climate change, very concerned about food, very concerned about students and their needs and so forth. So we do have some of those kinds of movements. They're often not as active politically as I would like to see them. I think uh, to some extent they're not sure where to direct their activism, and that's a problem. Um, One thing that... uh I think we have to think about, you know, when there is a big movement and in fact, and you get lots of people and even lots of media coverage and everybody says, wow, this is really going to change the world. Well, the usual response of the people with the power to actually do something is to form a committee. Better yet, you know, like the NFL formed two committees (laughs) and this is a guarantee. So what's going to happen The committees will, well, first they have to be formed and the committee members have to learn each other's names and and then they have to meet and meet and meet and meet and meet for at least a year. And then they have to put out their statements, which are like 500 pages. So nobody is going to know what anybody thinks. And then by then, of course, it will all have gone away. So this, I think, is one of the real problems of creating change. Uh, real change, not talking change, is that uh, we have this um, intermediate, intermediacy of the committee and somehow we have to find a mode of discourse where we can you know, keep this from happening you know, and get directly from the action to the change. Well, speaking as a dean, I can't imagine how we could do that, but <laughs> nevertheless. <laughs> uh, do we have another question out here? Well, excuse me, right here in the front. Um, I was wondering if you guys could speak on how the polarization of media ends up inhibiting free speech. I mean, I think it's very hard to turn on Fox and to see a debate that looks like... Turn on Fox? Why you... Well, my, my wife does it all the time, actually. She loves to listen to it so she can become incredibly indignant. And then when I come home at night, she unloads on me. Uh, <laughs> Which is, at least as a political scientist, that means I keep current with what's going on in those, in those places. Uh, but, I mean, it's very hard to hear a discussion. You just literally listen to some of that, and you just say, this is just not anywhere near anything that would sound like a reasonable discussion of the issues. It's just people often repeating falsehoods. I mean, really, lies. They lie. And then you heard me. They lie. They will when people um, lie. You should say so. I mean, that happened with one of my faculty members recently where they've had an ongoing statement about this person that is just untrue. And the decision was made by me and the faculty member that we weren't even going to try to contest the fact because all it would do is feed that crazy machine that if you start protesting, they love that. They're going to come back at you. Well, they, you know, the dean of the public policy school said this about the professor, but that's plainly false, even if they make it up. Well, they you do know, make up. They you do know, make it up. I mean, it's... Uh, and the other thing that that bunch of... You know, I, I of course, am not prejudiced in any way, but <laughs> it does seem to... Well, first, I can't... My doctor... I'm an old person. My doctor has said, watch your blood pressure, so I can't watch Fox. <laughs> but if I were to do so or that sort of thing, what, what I think they're very good at is switching... You know, they change words. It's, uh, it's a little Orwellian. Uh, that you take a word or you take an idea, um, you know, think of what Sarah Palin did with death panels. Mm -hmm. Think of what um, Frank Luntz, 
encourage people to do with death taxes. Mm-hmm. Death and life are their two big words. Mm-hmm. And you can go a long way with either of those. And it's, you know, a- and it's very hard to be for death or against life. So, you know, <laughs> rational discourse, which is in the middle of death and life, tends to lose out. Well, it is nice to have things like Michael Krasny in the Bay Area, where you can actually hear an honest discussion of some issues. Um, it's nice to have that. You know, I, I must confess I was a television executive for most of my career. So I, I say that very reluctantly because it's re- I think the media has done an incredibly poor job these days, with a good example being what I would characterize as false equivalency. So is climate change real or not? Let's have a 50-50 debate. I don't, I don't think she'd mind me telling the story. Inez Fung is a very distinguished climate scientist on campus. And we were driving one day, and she told me that she had been called by CNN to do a debate. You know, she would have 30 minutes to talk about climate change is real, and there would be a denier on for 30 minutes. And she wouldn't do it. She said, it's proven science. I'm not going to give 30 minutes to, to someone that has already been proven to be factually incorrect. So... Right here in the yellow. Dick, I wonder why the closure of Guantanamo Bay has not become a student's issue. I think that's pretty remote to most students, and and many of them might not even be. Yeah. By the way, an issue that I should have mentioned that students are very much involved with, that they've had some real success on, is sexual violence. And there's a very active group here on campus, and they've worked with members of the state legislature and with the national legislature and really had some impact, which I think is to the good. So there is is an area. Thank goodness. But I think that's a great question. So much is off our radar screen. I mean, it's it's an incredibly complicated world these days, and so many things are just not being focused on. Yes, in the black? I don't know. Yes, for you. Mm-hmm. Um, I heard Howard Zinn a few years ago when we still had Cody's, and I asked him how he kept his optimism. And he said, and he was very optimistic in bad times, and he said that you never know when the spark is going to spark, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that there, there, you couldn't have predicted the end of apartheid you couldn't have predicted the civil rights movement. In our own times, I think gay liberation mm-hmm. has just been a spark that moved very quickly. Right. So I think asking us what's the next thing and where are we going to go with it is an unknown, and I think it's coming. So that, that's a great point. I mean, I, gay marriage, I mean, I would have and ten the, years ago... And it's not even much of an issue for Republicans in this election. They're not using it. It's really stunning. And, in fact, cultural issues in general are not much uh, being discussed by Republicans in this election. That is quite remarkable. Are we sometimes forgetting that the free speech movement was a reaction to the administration's compliance with uh, the powers in the Oakland Tribune and the governor's office because the students were already involved in civil rights movements and coming back during the summer and arousing 
the right of free speech here, that indeed the students had gotten involved in state politics mm -hmm. and were swaying elections. And therefore, the administration was trying to crack down on off-campus activity that the students were involved in. Right, and William Nolan was the publisher of the Oakland Tribune at the time and also the U.S. senator, as people said, the U.S. senator from Taiwan, I think, was the... Anyone want to speak to that? No, I mean, it, it's a useful and, and good comment to remember, yeah. You had one over here? Yeah. Hi. Oh. Hi. Um, I was just wondering if you wanted to speak more to, like, social media's role in kind of all these protests now, because I know everyone criticizes my generation that we're not willing to go out, stand out. I mean, Berkeley is not as big an issue, but on a lot of college campuses, you know, people are willing to like something on Facebook but not go out and actually protest. So, could you comment on that? Well, I, I've actually written about, there's people in Silicon Valley who will tell you that the internet has revolutionized the world and it's going to revolution, and it has, but that it's also revolutionized, say, political participation. And the sad thing when you look at the data is all it's really done is recreated the socioeconomic uh, differences that we already see in old styles of participation. Uh, there's a little hint that maybe some of the social media have a somewhat different um, set of characteristics, but we're not sure yet because the, it really is highly related to the fact that social media are used so much by young people, and young people have a certain um, uh, um, set of characteristics. Uh, specifically, a lot of young people are not that well-off, so it looks like more less well-off people are using social media than were in the past participating in other ways. But that may just be that a lot of young people who are not that well off are using social media. Once they grow up, we'll get back to the fact that folks with lots of resources tend to be the rich, the well-educated, are much more participated, uh, participant than those who are not so well off. So that's been a real sadness to me and my co-authors that we came up with that conclusion. Okay, in the red right here, you, yeah. seems to me that hits the gender issue and diversity issues and a whole lot of things. Those who aren't so well off don't have much of a chance against those holding all the resources. And I, I certainly would hope that would be an issue that's coming out now and would have some changes in 50 years. Well, I certainly hope so. I write books about that and I'm very concerned about inequalities in political participation, uh, which are fueled by uh, inequalities in wealth. And to the degree that increasingly we have a politics based on money, I think it's sort of scary where we're going. And we have a Supreme Court which seems unwilling to find ways uh, to try to limit that kind of thing. So that, I think, is a really bad thing. And I wish past, I think we need public financing of elections. That's, it's not going to solve all the problems, but it would be one important step. Over here. I wanted to ask something about civility because it seems to me a lot of the talk about civility wants civility to have to do with shouting or disturbing other people or and things in that line of thought whereas we're talking about people that are sharing the same bed right and 
lying to those people, disrespecting those people, standing up in front of them when they state their protest and coming out with some kind of vague political, uh, I, I call it marketing lies. Uh, is, is that uh, considered to be uncivil behavior? Well, it would be uncivil because it's, it's deceptive. You know, it's a way of turning discussion away from things that matter. So, yeah, I think any kind of um, discussion that is meant to cut off, you know, necessary discussion, I would consider a form of incivility. And therefore, it's saying you lie is the same thing as coming out with one of these marketing lies that you often get in response to some question. Uh, you lie is a little less subtle. But, uh, <laughs> a little less subtle, and I would say, I'll stop now, I would say a little less subtle and to me personally a lot more offensive. Yes, mm-hmm. a lot more dangerous, really. Over here on the far right? Yeah, I, well, hopefully not politically. Um, <laughs> but I think there's a, um, I think part of the question of civility, and we see it in this room, is it's all right to say things about the Republicans, but... Also, the idea that somehow all the solutions have to be found within the framework of this system. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about the question of climate change, we know that Chevron and other oil companies basically hold the future of life as we know it in their, on their profit books, they're not going to relinquish control over that. There's very little discussion of that. The question of the prisons I'm an abolitionist. That's why I like Frederick Douglass. I don't think, I think at a certain point, this idea of finding the mid-ground doesn't work. A lot of the students that I teach have come out of Pelican Bay, San Quentin, uh, smaller prisons. They have, there was a reason why they overstepped the bounds. And there are many people who have committed much more heinous crimes who actually had large corporations, I don't know whether they're in universities, but really enjoy the privileges of this system. And I think we have to really, if we're really going to have a real discussion, we have to be not afraid to talk about the real underpinnings of the problem. Here. I'm just going to make a note. We have five minutes left, so we'll have two or three more questions, probably. Yes. Does someone have the microphone? So, there? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. uh, hi. Um, I was really glad that uh, um, about the connection between civility and what was just mentioned about uh, the home and the idea of collective identity. And it seems to me that meaning often gets lost when we equ- equate civility with politeness. And, and Chancellor Dirk's statement did emphasize courteousness and seemed to really stick on that meaning. And it even seemed that, that what Professor Martin was reading from Frederick Douglass could really be understood as, as the deepest form of civility in the sense that Douglass was um, trying to restore or, or improve the American collective identity. And Douglass often appealed to the U.S. Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. And, and it's the, often the most radical movements that are actually trying to restore the, the common household in a way. And in that sense, civil disobedience does not mean polite disobedience. It means disobedience that attempts to somehow uh, improve our, our life together. And, and so my, my question is, how can we tell when politeness 
is actually important for civility and when it's really just a smokescreen for, for something else entirely. Yeah, there's, this, there's a bunch of words. Yeah. Uh, very, you know, an interesting string of words. Civility is one, politeness, mannerliness, uh, courtesy, uh, and gentility. Notice we've gone a ways from one to the other. Right, right. With the nobles. Yes, exactly. So, of course, uh, some of the old senses of some of these words, you know, are going to be in conflict if we start going back to their sources and taking them literally. But I, I was glad that you, um, that you, you were thinking about the point I was trying to make, which is that um, civility really does start out way back in the distant past as something that is owed to people who are us, that are like us. And one way I think that this um, is not a bad way necessarily to think is that what we have to do now is extend that us, that we're at a point now where the ways that we used to very, uh, you know, without much problem, divide up society, you know, the usual white, Christian, powerful, uh, economically successful uh, males, you know, were the us, and uh, the rest of people were the them that nothing was owed to, and they could be spoken of or to in uh, very uncivil and hurtful ways. That I'm, one thing I would be hopeful for, one of the things we've learned in the last 50 or 60 years maybe, is that that us, that usness, has to be extended to include all the groups that, you know, including the ones who were once on the periphery. So if we can do that, if we can uh, extend the notion of sharing a household, being, you know, sharing a bed with people who once seemed to be very unlike us, uh, we would really be making progress. And I think, you know, I started with um, Joe Wilson's remark because I think that a lot of the problem that President Obama has is one that, you know, he, he, he isn't, you know, we don't, uh, we don't, have as much respect for him as perhaps we should because of what he has to be operating against. That is the sense that he is not part of the us and therefore we don't have to listen to him. So, I should say I think universities play an important role yes. here to the degree they really try to make sure they have diversity and inclusion. That's really important. There's real research that shows that in those circumstances you graduate people who are more tolerant and have a larger sense of what us is. I, I think our time is up, but what I, I'm hoping that perhaps our panelists can linger for a little bit of time. I don't know your schedules. If people want to come up and ask follow-up questions here as well, and I would just say uh, we're going to have a... Well, let you finish up, but one thing yeah, I wanted to say is... Yeah, yeah it, but I'd urge... I mean, this is obviously a very involved, concerned audience, and I would just say personally, I hope you'll keep on keeping on. Uh, because there are answers out there. It's bleak right now, but uh, let's keep on. Hello, everyone. I'm Selma Meyerwitz, a board member of the Center on Civility and Democratic Engagement, class of 68 member. I just want to thank everybody for coming. It was a great turnout. And great discussion. And I want to thank our panelists, Dean Brady, Professor Lakoff, Professor Martin, and most certainly also our moderator, Dick Barris, fellow classmate, class of 68. Please 
Please take a minute when you go out to see the flyer about the center. It's also on the back of your uh, announcement for the um, lecture today. Also, take a look at a flyer that has class of 68 and friends, gatherings forever. Class of 68 members have been gathering quarterly on campus for over 10 years now. We welcome everyone to support the center. We welcome everyone to participate in our gatherings. And there's plenty of contact information on these flyers for you to get in touch with us. Thank you.